Let's go to the Lord for, in prayer and ask for his help as we look at his word together. Father, we've sung songs this morning that remind us uh, that we truly um, have a, a limitless store of things to give you thanks for. Lord, we really have no excuse to ever be complaining or grumbling. Lord, um, you have lavished your grace upon us in the person of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, your grace is a well that's too deep to fathom. Lord, every time we draw from it, uh, it never decreases um, because we are hidden in the person of your Son, the one in whom grace and truth abound, the one who has brought grace and truth to us. Lord, help us never to stray far from our Lord Jesus in our thoughts and our meditations and our desires in our activities. Lord, help us to leave our minds with him, um, set on heaven where he is seated at your right hand. Lord, help us to keep our eyes fixed upon him, to never look away, we pray. And may you help us through your word this morning to, to do that ever more faithfully, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 this morning. Uh, last week we looked at verses 1 through 8. This week we're looking at verses 9 through 13. Um, but I will go ahead just so we can get the context of the chapter. I'll read the whole chapter for us starting in verse 1. So 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1. Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you. An immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled... And I, with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven, so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. In the 10th volume of the Baptist Memorial and Monthly Record, which is a, was a publication devoted to the history of the American Baptist denomination, the second pastor that this church ever had 
was featured in that publication in a short memoir. He died in 1849, and this memoir was published in 1851. And this pastor, who was a pastor here way back then, his name was John Peck, and his name is on the plaque in the back of the room there. He pastored here from 1804 to 1835, at which time he stepped down. He retired from the pastorate, and he did that in order to become a full-time agent for the Baptist Missionary Convention. And the memoir recorded in that publication about him records a letter that he wrote on the same day he retired from being pastor here. At that time, this church was called the First Baptist Church of Casanova. And I want to read to you the beginning of this letter that he wrote on that day he retired. It says this, quote, This day finishes my labors with the church in Casanova as their pastor, an office I've held for 31 years, though unworthy. By examining the records, I find there have been added to the church under my ministry about 765. I have baptized into the fellowship of the church 640, and 422 have been dismissed or sent out, from whom six churches have been chiefly organized. Fifty-five have been excluded or excommunicated, and about one-fifth of them have been restored again to the fellowship of the church. Seventy-two have died, and I trust are sleeping in Jesus. Twenty-one believe they have been called to preach the gospel. Fifteen of them have been ordained, and most of them are settled in different churches as pastors. The present number of members is 336, unquote. A little bit later on in the letter, he adds this, quote, I did and do still consider it a great mercy that he, speaking of the Lord, he suffered me to live where he had so many of his chosen, and at a time when it was his pleasure to bring them into his fold and give me the privilege of looking on and being a witness to his work in the salvation of precious souls. The church enjoys a delightful union and for 29 years has not passed over a communion and has been blessed with eight special revivals of religion. It is the greatest trial I ever experienced to separate myself from this flock as their pastor. It has caused my heart to bleed." Unquote. That was John Peck, the second pastor this church ever had. And in that letter, John Peck describes a thriving church that had great harmony and was experiencing great growth. But I don't want you to miss one of the statistics I read in the midst of that harmony, in the midst of that great growth. Remember, he said this, 55 have been excluded, excommunicated, church disciplined out of fellowship. And of those 55, one-fifth, or about 11, were restored again to fellowship in the church. That was over the course of 31 years of ministry. Most church growth strategies do not include church discipline. That is because most church growth strategies are formulated on worldly wisdom rather than upon the scriptures. But 200 years ago, this church that we are sitting in this morning, this church was striving to conduct itself in accordance 
with the same scriptures that we're looking at today. They were aware of passages such as Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5, and they sought to obey them. Like we saw in Sunday school, they sought the Lord, and the Lord prospered them. And that's an example that that we have started following about 20 years ago when Pastor Barney became pastor, and, and we need to keep striving to follow that example. So this is where we're at this morning in 1 Corinthians 5. And we're looking at verses 9 through 13, and it's about this subject, this difficult subject of church discipline. And we're going to look at it in two, um, two sections here. The first section we'll see is in verses 9 through 10, and it's here that we find out who is not subject to church discipline. Who is not subject to church discipline? We need to know who this is involving and who it's not involving. Last week, remember, we saw the urgency of church discipline, and we saw the reason for church discipline, why it's important. This week, we're going to see who is not subject to church discipline and who is. So let's look first at who is not. Verse 9, Paul writes, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. In verse 9, Paul refers to a letter that he had previously written to this congregation. Now, we don't have this letter. The Lord did not see fit to preserve it for us, so we don't know all that was contained in the letter. But at the very least, we do know that Paul wrote them saying, hey, don't associate with the sexually immoral. And the fact that in verse, or chapter 5, Paul is saying you need to not associate with this man in your midst that tells us they did, they did not do a very good job listening to his previous letter, did they? They're still tolerating having someone like that in their midst as a church. They've not heeded his words. So they either ignored what Paul wrote or they misunderstood what he had said. Could it be that they understood Paul in that previous letter to mean that they were to stay away from the sexually immoral outside of the church? Did they think that because this man who had his father's wife was a professing believer within the church that they were to give him a pass on his behavior? We can't know exactly what they were thinking. But in any case, Paul endeavors to clarify what he had said previously. And that clarification comes in verse, or, yeah, verse 10, verse 10, which I read. He said, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. Church discipline involves separating yourself from someone, withdrawing from someone. And in that previous letter, Paul did not mean for them to understand him as saying they were to completely isolate themselves from all unbelievers, from the sexually immoral. He didn't intend for them to try to get away from people outside of the church whose lives were marked by sexual immorality or by covetousness or swindling or idolatry. They were, after all, living in Corinth. Corinth was a city characterized by those kinds of lifestyles. They would have had to leave the city. And having left the city, they would find 
they would have to leave the planet to get away from unbelievers who were living those kinds of lifestyles. Paul is saying, that's not what I meant when I said don't associate with the sexually immoral. That's important for us to understand. When God saved you, he didn't immediately transport you into heaven. If that's what he does, then what does that say about all of us who are sitting here, (laughs) not in heaven this morning? No, he left us here. Why did he do that? Listen to what Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer when he was getting ready to return to heaven. You don't have to turn there, but this is from John 17, verses 15 to 18. Jesus said, he prayed, I do not ask you, speaking to his father, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. If God has saved you, you are still here because Jesus is and has sent you on a mission. We each have a divine purpose for why we're still here. And what is that mission? It's very clear. Jesus lays it out for us in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 19, where he said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. As a church, that is what we're here to do. We're lights in this dark world. God does not intend for us to go off to some distant island and set up a monastery. He doesn't intend for us to only interact with believers. He intends for us to follow in Jesus' footsteps, the same Jesus who came to seek and to save who? The lost. And that's what we're to do, to seek the lost, to bring them to the Savior. Think back to your lives as an unbeliever. At some point, someone somewhere loved you enough to come alongside of you and to proclaim to you the gospel that Jesus died in the place of sinners, paying for their sins, and he rose from the dead. And at some point, you believed in that message. You repented of your sins. You put your trust in Christ, and he forgave you. He saved you. He made you a new creature in him. And now you are to go and tell that very same saving message to another unbeliever, to love them enough to do that. And you cannot do that without rubbing shoulders with them. So verses 9 and 10 of 1 Corinthians 5 are what Paul did not mean. He did not say, do church discipline on unbelievers. You can't remove somebody who's already removed from you. We're not to try to get away from unbelievers. We are to seek them, to bring them to the Savior. So, unbelievers are not subject to church discipline. So who is? This brings us to the second section of our our message this morning. Who is subject to church discipline? And we'll see this in verses 11 through 13. And we'll kind of work through these three verses in two steps First, we'll see that unrepentant believers 
are subject to church discipline. Unrepentant believers. We see this in verse 11. Look at what Paul says there. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So, according to that verse, who are we not to associate with? Who are we not to get mixed up with? Who are we not to tolerate participating in the life of the church? Well, Paul tells us that this individual who we must not tolerate must fulfill uh, both of two conditions. He must fulfill both of two conditions. First condition is this. This person that we are not to associate with is a so-called brother. Not not an unbeliever, a professing believer, a so-called brother. This is someone who is viewed by the church as a legitimate brother or sister in Christ based upon their profession of faith. That's the first condition. The second condition that must be met to, to be someone who is subject to church discipline is that This person is someone whose life is characterized by unrepentant sin. Characterized by unrepentant sin. Look at verse 11 again. He says, I wrote you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is, if he is an immoral person, if he is covetous, if he is an idolater, if he is a reviler, if he is a drunkard, if he is a swindler. By saying that this person is this, he's saying this person is characterized by this kind of behavior. He's not trying to turn away from it at all. So Paul is not saying that we are to cut somebody off from the life of the church the first time they fall into one of these sins. He's not saying that we are to cut somebody off from the life of the church if they are struggling with one of these sins, fighting it, striving to repent in it. Maybe they're falling repeatedly into it, but they keep repenting. They keep seeking for help to turn from this sin. They keep fighting it. That's not who Paul is talking about. The person he is saying not to associate with is someone who has made their bed in sin and they're lying in it. They're not trying to turn away from it. That's what this man who has his father's wife was doing. He wasn't trying to turn away from this sin at all. He was embracing it. That is who is subject to church discipline. But notice at the end of verse 11, Paul says that we are not even to eat with such a one. We're not even to eat with such a one. What does that mean? In the ancient world, eating with someone was significant. Listen to what commentator David Garland says about the significance of having a meal, breaking bread with someone. Quote, eating together connoted more than friendliness in ancient culture. It created a social bond. When Christians ate together, it reinforced and confirmed the solidarity established by their shared confession of faith in Christ. Refusing to eat with fellow Christians guilty of such acts breaks all social ties with them as well as excludes them from the Lord's Supper. 
unquote. He goes on to say that, quote, Christians who are no different morally from unbelievers blur the clear distinctions between the church and the world and destroy their testimony to God's transforming power in their lives. Those who are blatantly immoral cannot be allowed to appear to represent what it means to be a Christian, unquote. So when Paul says to not even eat with such a one, he seems to be saying that he doesn't want these Corinthians to communicate to this man or to the church or to the watching world that the church and this man are still on the same team, that they're still playing for the same coach. He doesn't want that unclear, false message to go out. He says, don't even eat with such a one. He wants to maintain the church's clear testimony that when Jesus saves you, he saves you from your sin. He doesn't save you for your sin so that you can keep pursuing a life of sin without fear. He saves you from it. Not that we become perfect, but that we become freed from being enslaved to it. But we still need some help in understanding what does this look like in my life? If someone in this church, they, they are fallen into sin and we've gone to them privately, we've taken one or two others along to encourage them to repent, and they still don't listen, we tell it to the whole church, the whole church is encouraging this person to repent and they still won't repent. And so we say, on the basis of Scripture, we have to ask you to leave our fellowship how far does that extend into our individual lives as Christians? What does it look like to, as an individual believer, continue to support this decision? Are we talking about not having them over for Thanksgiving? Does this mean that if that person's drowning in a lake, I don't jump in to save them from drowning? What are we talking about here? And this is where it's very important to not isolate a verse from its context, because if you do that, you can carry it out to cruel extremes. So what is Paul saying? We need to labor to understand what is Paul talking about when he says, don't even eat with them. What is he saying? Well, this brings us to our next two verses, which is the second stage in coming to an understanding of, of who is subject to church discipline. We saw that up in verse 11, unrepentant believers are subject to, to church discipline. But in verses 12 to 13, we get a little bit clearer picture that it's unrepentant believers in the church who are subject to church discipline. Now, as this unfolds, hopefully you can see the significance of that title there. Unrepentant believers in the church are subject to church discipline. Look at verse 12. Paul asks two rhetorical questions. And the answers to these questions are implied in his very asking of them. Verse 12, he says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? What's the implied answer? Well, Paul has nothing to do with judging outsiders. The church has nothing to do with judging outsiders. It's not the responsibility of the church to judge outsiders. Now, this does not mean that we shouldn't point out wrongdoing in unbelievers. It does not mean that we are not to seek to warn them of the wrath to come. It doesn't even mean that we should not seek to hold them accountable for their evil actions. We should do that. But what Paul means 
when he says we as a church are not to judge outsiders, he means that God has not given any authority to the church to be able to exercise any kind of judicial discipline or carry out any kind of penalty on those outside the church, unbelievers. God does that. God, by his own hand and through other delegated authorities like rulers, governors, judges, law enforcement officers, God does that. The second question of verse 12, Paul asks this, speaking to the church, do you not judge those who are within the church? The implied answer is what? Yes, we do have the responsibility to judge those within the church. Now, Paul, in verse 13, he elaborates on this. He says, but those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. God is the judge of unbelievers, those outside of the church. The church, however, has been delegated by God the authority to judge those who are within her midst. At the end of verse 13, Paul quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes a phrase that is repeated several times in the book of Deuteronomy. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And you don't have to turn here, but if you want to jot down these references and look them up on your own, you find this phrase or something similar to it in Deuteronomy 13, verse 5, chapter 17, verse 7, and verse 12. Chapter 19, verse 19, chapter 22, verse 21, and verse 24, and chapter 24, verse 7. In those passages, Israel is commanded to purge or remove the evil man from among you, from the community of Israel. That is where Paul is drawing this, this verse from. And in those verses, you see that the evil that they're being called to purge comes in the form of false teachers, false prophets, idolaters, rebels, false witnesses, drunkards, adulterers, thieves. And usually the penalty implied there when they're commanded to remove this person from Israel, the penalty is death in most of these cases. Now, unlike Israel, the severest penalty that the church is authorized to carry out is not ex execution. We don't hang people in this congregation, so don't try to do that. No, the severest penalty that God commands us to carry out is excommunication when we disfellowship someone if they won't repent of sin. So the, the degree, the penalties are different, but the principle is the same. As Israel was to remove the wicked man, so the church is to remove the wicked man, the unrepentant man or woman. Both communities were required, are required by God to maintain their purity. Now this helps us in answering the question I posed a little while ago. To what extent are we as individual believers required by God not to associate with a professing believer who is unrepentantly pursuing a life of sin. Well, these verses 12 and 13 suggest 
that the church's exclusion of someone extends to the areas of life where the church and Christ are being represented. That's what the church does. We represent Christ. We call people to Christ. We follow Christ. So any area in your life where you are operating um, in a way that ties you to the church at large, where you are representing the whole church, representing Christ, any behavior in which you are drawing someone else into that representative behavior, you are not to include an unrepentant professing believer in that activity of representing Christ, representing the church. They are not to participate in that. Let me try to say it another way. Verses 12 and 13 tell us that the church is required to remove such persons from where? From the church. The church is not commanded to remove someone from his or her biological family. The church is not commanded to remove someone from a place of business. The church is not commanded to remove someone from society. God has given the church the responsibility to remove the unrepentant believer from the church. And once they're placed outside of the church, it's up to God to determine what more is to be done to discipline them because those who are outside, who judges? God judges. Now I want us to go to a few other scriptures to help fill in our understanding of what does church discipline look like? Yeah, I get that uh, they shouldn't take the Lord's Supper, but does it stop there? How far into my life outside these four walls does this extend, if at all? What does Paul mean when he says, don't even eat with such a one? Uh, turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, and we'll look at verses 27 to 32. 27 to 32. This is recording for us something in the life of Jesus. And I want you, before we read this, I want you to keep in mind that in this passage here, Jesus is operating under the old covenant. He hasn't gone to the cross yet. He hasn't instituted the new covenant yet. He's still living under the law. And we need to keep in mind that, the, that Israel is not the same thing as the church. They're both the people of God, but they're not quite identical to one another. So there's not a one-to-one -one correlation between this passage in Luke and the passage we're looking at in 1 Corinthians. But we do see here that there are general biblical principles at play that are common to both communities. That is why Paul quoted from Deuteronomy, because that same principle applied to both Israel and to the church, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So it's instructive to see how Jesus interacts with these wicked men, wicked members of the community. So let me just read it for us. Verse 27. After that, Jesus went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, 
Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So, we see in this scene that Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. And this crowd of people most likely is mostly Jews. That's why the Pharisees have such a problem with him rubbing shoulders with these individuals. These are probably individuals who under the Mosaic law would be subject to being purged from the community. All right? They're not living in accordance with the law of God. They are in outward rebellion. They would have been required to be purged from the community to not infect the rest of the nation. Now at this time in Israel's history, I know I'm throwing a lot at you, but I, I'm, we need to go through this to understand this. At this time in Israel's history, they had lost the ability to do that, to purge people. They couldn't just execute people because they were under Roman rule. All right? But let's consider what Jesus is doing here. Is Jesus, here in Luke 5, is Jesus going against the principle that we see Paul advocating in 1 Corinthians 5? Is Jesus living contrary to that? What do we think? No, he's not living contrary to that. Why not? Because this meal that Jesus is having with these uh, rebellious folks, he's not holding a worship service with them. He's not worshiping God in the synagogue or in the temple with these individuals. He's not celebrating the Passover with these individuals. He's not giving, catch this, he's not giving these individuals the false impression that they are good with God. He's not communicating that to them or to anyone else. Because what is he doing in verse 32? Is he saying, you don't need to be saved? What is he exhorting these people he's with? He's calling them to repentance, to come back to God, to turn their lives over to God. He's not coddling them. He's not saying you can keep living the way you're living. He's rubbing shoulders with them to, to pursue them, to bring them back into the fold. That is what he's doing. And this is the same Jesus who gave us the instructions on church discipline that we read in Matthew 18 when he says, remove the person from the church. Jesus is not doing one thing and saying another. He's acting perfectly consistently. And this helps us in understanding what does it look like in our lives today when you do church discipline on someone. On your own time, if there's a couple passages you want to read um, that fill out our understanding of church discipline, one is Romans 16, 17, where we're told not to tolerate having someone in our midst who deceives or is a stumbling block to others. Another passage is Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, that tells us that when we go to help a brother caught in sin, we need to be very careful not to get caught up in their sin as we interact with them. This helps us understand more about church discipline. But I do want you to turn to 2 Thessalonians 3. 2 Thessalonians 3. <clears throat> Verse 
On your own time, I'd have you read verses 6 all the way through verse 15, but I'm just going to focus on three verses in 2 Thessalonians 3. Paul says this in verse 6. He says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you received from us. Now drop down to verse 14. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person, and do not associate with him, so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. We see here Paul gives similar instructions as he did in 1 Corinthians. We're told not to associate with the unrepentant person so that he will be put to shame. Why would we seek to put him to shame? So that he would come to his senses and repent and be brought back into the fold of believers in the church. But notice that according to verse 15, there's a limit. There's a limit to our withdrawal, to our not associating with this person. We are not to regard him as an enemy, but we're to admonish him as a brother. So these are passages that we need to allow to inform our understanding of 1 Corinthians 5. All right, I, I know I've given you a lot of thoughts to think through. You've probably not caught it all. I've probably confused many. But to help us think through it a little clearer, let's take an example. We just celebrated Thanksgiving. Say that in this congregation you had an uncle or a daughter or a cousin who is a professing believer but who has been living in unrepentant sin to the degree that we have had to disfellowship this person from the church. And you are planning on hosting Thanksgiving dinner this year. And normally you invite this person to join you on Thanksgiving to stuff your faces together. But you've just read 1 Corinthians 5:11 and your start your palms start sweating and your heart is pumping faster because you don't know am I allowed by God to have this person over for Thanksgiving? So let's think through it. This is like a real-life situation that we may have to encounter someday. Remember, the church is responsible to remove unrepentant sinners from where? The church. That has already been done. This person has been disfellowshipped from the church. And as a member of the church, you do have a responsibility to uphold that judgment that the church decided on in faithfulness to the Word of God. You need to be careful not to include this person, even though they're a relative. You need to be careful not to include this person in activities where Christ and her church are being represented. Now, does that apply to Thanksgiving dinner? Well, what are you doing when you sit down at a table to celebrate Thanksgiving together? Your Thanksgiving dinner is not a church service. You are, you are simply saying to this person, you are a member of my family. I love you. I want you here so that I can be involved in your life. You're not, by sitting down at the Thanksgiving dinner table with this person, you are not saying, hey, you're in good standing with Christ. 
you're allowed to keep living the way you're living. You're not communicating that simply by sitting down to have Thanksgiving with this person. So, at least as I understand it, to have Thanksgiving with this person, you are not disobeying what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 5 about not eating with such a one. Okay? Now, say you ended up having them over for Thanksgiving. A couple days go by and it's Sunday morning. And you happen to be celebrating the Lord's Supper that day. And you look up and this person who's been disfellowshipped, they come anyway, and they come and they sit down right next to you. And the plate with the bread and the cup is being passed around. And the plate comes to you. And you look to your side and you see this person sitting next to you. And again, your palms start sweating. Your heart starts beating fast because what do I do? What do I do in this situation? Well, there's a big difference between sitting down to Thanksgiving with someone and partaking of the Lord's Supper with someone. Because at the Lord's Supper in church, you're not just stuffing your face watching a football game together. You are celebrating what the Lord Jesus Christ has done by shedding his blood on the cross to save you from your sin. And if you pass the plate to your relative, you are encouraging him to mock what Jesus has done. You are helping him to deceive himself. You are communicating to him and to the church and to the watching world that, hey, it's okay for you to keep pursuing your sin instead of pursuing Christ. So you need to not pass them the plate. So you take that stand for Christ. You don't give them the plate. But you know that after service, a group of you are going to sit down to have dinner together, and then you're going to go out and evangelize the community. And normally you invite this person to come with you to do that, but this time you do not. Because you realize that this, even though it's not during the service, this is still something that involves living life in the church. You are eating together in a bond of fellowship in which you're both you're all purposing to go out and to call people to repentance. And you know that this person who is persisting in sin cannot be allowed to join with your gathering to, to eat and to go out and evangelize because this person must not be allowed to be thought by the watching world to represent what it means to follow Christ because he is not following Christ. You cannot bring him along on that. This is just, there's so many situations we could work through together, but I hope that helps you see a distinction and where we draw the line of what it looks like to disfellowship someone. And if you have questions, I'm happy to talk with you about it. I apologize for being confusing up here, but it's important that we understand what does this look like. 55 times in 31 years of ministry, John Peck and that congregation had to walk through this. We ought not to deceive ourselves and think that this will never happen to us. It will, and we need to be ready. We need to know, how do we honor Christ in this situation? How do I love this sinning brother or sister? How do I pursue them? How do I seek to bring them back into the fold? How do I communicate clearly to them? We need to act 
It will take a lot of prayer. It will take much wisdom from the Lord to know how do we implement what the Scriptures are calling us to do in these various situations. But remember what Jesus promised in Matthew 18, 20. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Jesus will help us to strike the proper balance between church discipline where we're guarding the purity of the church on the one hand, but on the other hand, we're seeking to bring this brother or this sister back into the joy of faithfully following Christ. He, our Lord Jesus will help us, so we need not fear. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you don't shy away from telling us hard things, things that we need to hear from your word. Lord, I, this message was a challenge for me to know how to communicate clearly and put together. I pray it was of some help to your people. Um, Lord, where I've confused, may your spirit bring clarity. May your people take some time to meditate on these verses and, and think through what does it look like to be faithful to you and to your word and, and being obedient to what you've called us to do in church discipline. Lord, help us to be active in being involved in church discipline, not only at those final stage, but at the very beginning when we see one another fall into sin. Help us to remove the log from our own eye, to deal with our own hearts, and then, having been humbled and now seeing clearly, help us to love that person enough to come alongside of them and say, Brother, sister, I see you do this. It does not honor Christ. Let's Figure out how can we honor him better in those areas of your life. Lord, help us to love one another to do that early on so that it never becomes this mushroom cloud of, of destruction, Lord, that, that sin wreaks upon your church, Lord. Uh, make us faithful, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.